Welcome back, listeners, for another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. I am, as always, honored to be speaking with another wonderful musician here in the state of Georgia, and this time with someone I have known personally for several years now. Before we get to that conversation, I just want to encourage all of you to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues, and if you can take the time to leave a review, I would really appreciate it. And now let's get to today's conversation. I am joined by Boris Abramov. Hello, Boris. Let's get started with just a background question. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. I am currently a lecturer of violin at the Schwab School of Music at Columbus State University. I uh, teach, I am also the principal second violinist of the Columbus Symphony Orchestra in Columbus, Georgia. I perform in various different groups and chamber music and in the US and abroad. And so I do a little bit of everything actually, as it seems like. How it all started, actually, I think my story is very straightforward. I never really picked music myself the way I remember. We immigrated to Israel when I was one from the former Soviet Union. And according to my grandmother, I was a very musical child. So she is a pianist and she decided that it would be good for me to study music. And our neighbor at the time had a violin that he, I guess, was getting rid of or didn't need. So my relationship with the instrument is not really a, I don't have that kind of Hollywood story that I heard this sound and I don't really have that. How old were you at that point? I think I started when I was six or seven. I think seven would probably be the right age. So in many cases, it might be even late in today's standards because you hear about kids starting at three. And so, yeah, I don't think I really had a, I wasn't really aware of it being something unique. It was something that I was and still am very connected to my grandmother and she was a musician. So she kind of exposed me to this, to this world. But when you're a child, just part of many other things that are happening. But it was serious considering looking now back at what and how we were uh, working with music very often two lessons a week. I was always, I, again, something that I realized later on, my grandma was always at the piano practicing with me. Mm-hmm. So I always have this um, memory of having the piano part always with me. I always had, uh, I was never alone in that regard. Mm-hmm. And I have to give her a lot of credit for it because now when I learn a piece of music, it's almost something that I have to immediately think of. I cannot just think of my part or, so it, 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 it was very, very helpful. Um, when I was, uh, when I finished middle school, I went to high school and I went to one of the, I guess, most prestigious arts high school in the country. And I think that was the moment where my brain kind of became aware of there are brilliant people all around you and you want to learn from them. Some of them now today are very, very famous. And they were friends of mine when we were in high school. And what school was this? That uh, The name of the school is the Telma Yelin School of Performing Arts. It's uh, close to Tel Aviv. Did you intentionally pursue admission yes. to the school? Yes, I intentionally pursued uh, because I wanted to, I think, again, my grandmother realized, because I, I, I didn't live in the center of the country, so I didn't really have all the benefits of like a serious conservatory or, or uh, that kind of cultural life. We lived outside of the, a little bit outside the center, and basically my musical upbringing was private lessons only mm-hmm. for a very, very long time until high school. 
uh, I went to a regular high school, uh, middle school, uh, where there was no music at all there. So my life was very, very, very regular, if you want to call it, up until the age of 14. When I was 14, I went to an arts high school. That's when things changed. When we start having uh, the system also at that high school was very interesting because we had to graduate all the regular classes that you would be expected to in a, in a regular high school. On top of it, you had to pick a major if you wanted to go to that high school. Hmm. So just like a university, I guess. So if you, if you entered as a classical musician, Wednesdays, I remember during my time, Wednesdays, we had no classes. Everything was dedicated to your major. So it was quite an intense thing because also in Israel, Sundays is a work day, right? We start work on Sunday. So you have that intense kind of a lot of things happening at the same time. I also had to wake up really early because I would have to catch a bus or a train to go to that city. So every day, like you would wake up really early and come back very late. So that was my life for a few years. I think that was probably the most formative years because starting to play an orchestra on a regular basis, chamber music programs with the Jerusalem Music Center and, uh, you know, working with people like the concertmaster of the Berlin Philharmonic or very famous composers. I was suddenly, I was part of something. And I think for a musician to be part of something is an incredible thing. And I think we, re- we rarely think about it because very often we are part of something and we don't even realize we are. So I think I realized that very quickly because I realized that I had to step up my game. Like this whole thing of just playing violin and it just wasn't going to cut it anymore. Even though I was performing on a regular basis, I have to give it to my teacher. She was constantly pushing me on stage. So mm-hmm. I had that also. At the age of, uh, well, after towards the end of high school, I, um, I probably met my biggest influence, who, who was Professor Schwartz, who I work alongside with at the Schwab School of Music. And we met at a music festival and I expressed my interest to audition to his class. And after a certain amount of time, it kind of worked out. And I arrived in Columbus, Georgia in 2006. Are you able to articulate into words what attracted you to him and his teaching style? Yeah, I think I can. At that time, I think it was also, uh, it it was several elements that came together. My age. You have to start thinking of college and what's next. Are you staying in the country? Are you going abroad? Professor Schwartz was recommended at first by someone that we knew that I should play for him. And honestly speaking, I just, from our first meeting, it became clear to me that this is someone who I admire. Mm -hmm. I think you need to admire your teacher. It's a very important thing. I think when, 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 when there's a sense of admiration, your progress is already doubling just by the fact that you are looking forward to hear what they have to say, what they have to show you if they show you. Professor Schwartz was such a hands-on kind of teacher. You know, he was always with his instrument. He played beautifully and he always showed. I still think he's probably one of the greatest examples that I've ever heard of someone who can show you something and you go, it's, it's, a, it, it's something. And I immediately realized I want to study with someone like that. And also, I won't lie, the fact of um, I felt ready to move on. I, have, I had this thing uh, deep inside me that, and again, I was talking to my grandmother about it because we were talking about it all the time. And she said to me, she's like, she was going by this notion of nobody's pressuring you, but you are so young and you have the chance to see the world and 
experience new new ideas new ways of life and i need i i only realized later on how much i really needed it and uh, when i arrived at chuo i think that's where i became kind of who i am finally because mm-hmm. all these influences and all that story just kind of clicked and i finally felt like my identity is set to a certain degree i guess especially when you're that young but at least you get a sense of what is it that you're doing then i guess i'll speed up a little bit i finished three degrees at chuo I did my undergrad, I did my master's, and I did my artist diploma there. And a lot of people ask me, why didn't I leave after a certain time? And um, it's not like I, I couldn't. I was even in touch with certain people that, that were, I guess, interested in me coming and auditioning. But towards the end of my undergraduate degree, I think that's, that I finally started to feel like I'm actually accomplishing something that we worked throughout those four years to change and fix and going through all that process that I guess some bad habits that I had. And I had quite a few, I must say. A lot of people just seem to think that it's all just wonderful. It was not the case. And <laughs> Professor Schwartz is always too nice about it. He's like, no, no, you had certain things. You had. No, I had a lot of things that I had to, to do. At the end of my undergraduate degree, I felt like if I would leave, I wouldn't be able to finish what I started. Because if you leave, you change the environment, you change the teacher. You have to, you don't really know how is it going to change. And I felt like I had a good thing going. I wanted to stay. At that time, there was no master's degree at Trobe, as far as I remember. The artist diploma program just appeared. And that's why I did my artist diploma before I did my master's. And after the master's program appeared, I was already doing concerts, serious kind of projects and uh, competitions, international competitions were, were on the agenda. And we were just preparing for a lot of things all the time. So my last two years, I was already presenting to him mostly programs. Like I remember one of our things that we did towards the end I played nine concerts and I performed all the Beethoven sonatas in them. That was the project. So all 10 of them. At that point, I was so happy with my musical environment. And one of the things that I have to give him so much credit for is that he really allowed me to be myself. And I didn't, I wasn't, I, I wasn't really sure if somebody else would be so kind. And uh, I was just very lucky that I was offered to start teaching as his assistant shortly afterwards. And here we are eight years later. That's great. I think you've already started touching on this, but what was practicing like for you as a child? Did your parents have to force you to do it or were you self-motivated? Yeah, awful. I was awful. I, I hated practicing. I wanted to go out and play and I wanted to, to do other things. I was never a person that only had music on his, on his mind. I'm still to this day interested in millions of other things and I feel like it's very, very important for who I am, actually. I never wanted to be one of these people who could discuss only Paganini caprices all day long. So for me, yeah, my grandmother was very, very clear about you come home after school, we, we practice. So yeah, I, that wasn't the case. At high school, things have changed because I didn't want to embarrass myself in front of people that I respected, especially people who were my friends, who were really great at what they were doing. And in general, I, was, I realized this is actually very serious. You, like, you cannot just know what's on your page. You have to know this. So my grandma's influence prepared me for that part of my life. And because of that influence, I was happy that I didn't have to fall back or anything. I just could continue growing. At my time at Schwab, I think practicing became my sort of, I call it my lab. Because I had to go through a lot of changes. 
And I kind of realized that nobody's going to do that for me. And I still, by the way, believe in that. And that's what I tell my students all the time. If you put all the responsibility on the teacher, you're going to get disappointed to a certain degree because we are in the art of, I can do it for you. I can guide you to it. So the, the idea that I, I knew that when, if our lessons with Professor Schwartz, a lot of the time looked like I would bring a variety of different things I'm working on. And I would hear him telling me, hmm, maybe, not, maybe not this, this is good, this is better. And it would form my plan. And then I would go back home and I would start, like my, I remember my apartment was filled with stickers at a certain point because I was figuring out my, my anatomy and what am I doing? How am I going to learn to do things? And that's when I broke out of that practicing is just a chore. Practicing was something I was treating almost scientifically at that point. So I was very interested to see how my experiments work compared to what it was yesterday. So after that point, I never had a bad practice day. Still don't. Wow. Fascinating. I think it might be interesting to be a fly on the wall in one of your practice sessions. If you ask my wife, she says that uh, he doesn't practice. He just kind of like he fixes things on the spot. And that's not really true because I, I just managed to find a way where I can go back to something. And I, I think it's teachable, by mm-hmm. the way. I think there's a lot of people don't treat practice as an art. They treat practice as something they have to do in order to maintain something. So a lot of it becomes very one dimensional. And when, when that changes, and I see it on my students a lot, especially when they make like significant improvements with something, they do it on the spot. It doesn't take them weeks, but it's very much a way of how we approach that. So after a while, things are supposed to become easier. If they're not becoming easier, then something is not right. Yeah, I mean, the whole point is to progress to the point that certain things are just becoming second nature. Yeah, I think we've started working our way towards, you know, why are you a musician? You've laid out this path in your life, but uh, why are you a musician and a teacher? Was there someone who was particularly influential in guiding you to this path? I honestly believe it was Professor Schwartz because I was not planning to become a teacher. I personally didn't even think that I would be good at teaching because of, once again, the way I am with myself. I just didn't really feel like I'll have the kind of patience to deal with someone when I have my own kind of relationship with myself of how I'm dealing with things. Looking back, I realized that I was kind of put through the, to the test, uh, not to make it sound dramatic, but people wanted to see is this going to be realistic? Because Boris just graduated with his master's. We don't really know if, what he can do, really. He's, he might be good at violin. But, and I remember I was working, and I quickly realized that for me, teaching is the ability to, number one, honestly telling, do I know what I'm talking about? Because it's one thing that you can do it. Can you really explain it to someone? And the second thing is that I realized that I learned significantly more while I'm teaching. And I'm the kind of person who loves to keep learning and learning and learning and learning. So for me, teaching became something that I really love because I really enjoy seeing something blossoming and knowing that you put just a little bit of care into it. It's a quite, quite a great feeling. And I feel like Professor Schwartz saw it way before I did. The fact that he thought that I could be, I could be good at this. This can be something that I can excel in. I personally didn't really realize up until way later. Describe your journey as a teacher. How have you changed? Who or what have been your key influences? 
That's a, that's a great question. I think at first I was sure that I would be teaching the way I was taught. I would be kind of a continuation of that idea. I quickly realized that I cannot do it and I don't want to do it. And very quickly, I realized that I pay a lot more attention to different things with my students. But when it comes to influences, and maybe I'll, I'll go into that in, in depth, I think that there are certain people in my life that because of not necessarily if I was taught by them or not, but the way I remember working with them as a student, as a collaborator, and just seeing what is happening when you're in that environment, it affects you deeply and it affects the way you see what is needed in order to become a professional musician. So if it's Professor Schwartz, what he's teaching, that would be one. Another person who's a huge influence on my career is Alexander Kobrin, who is wonderfully known pianist who took me to many, many parts of the world to play. And because of him, I got a chance to see that, that reality of what it's like to, when a professional needs to react. And that's a huge, huge lesson that no music school will be able to really teach you. You have to kind of like be in the process of working with professionals to actually feel that way. I remember seeing how people were practicing and how, and how they were working. A uh, famous guitarist that I always said that was a huge influence, Chad Ibison, who is actually now at Chuo performing with his wife. I always remembered him being a great influence because he, he made me look at music through different lenses. And eventually what I realized is that for me, what made me value certain things about my profession is the ability to find out how much fundamentals make a difference and how often we neglect fundamentals. So I became a big fundamentals guy at school. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I spend a lot of time working with my students on that. We even, this semester, we even have fundamental midterms, as I call them, where scales, etudes, arpeggios, such, have to be actually performed. <laughs> They're not just something you do in your practice room. Things change, you see it in students, because then when you approach a piece of music, if you have problems with fundamentals, then you have to look for sideways to kind of deal with them. And I think all these people that I named, and I named only three, but uh, of course the greats, you know, I've, I, I'm a kind of person who always watches and listens. Lately, uh, we even had in pedagogy class, uh, the cellist, Janusz Starker. Huge influence, especially with his uh, uh, organized method of string playing. Huge influence because you look at things that are, yeah, it's obvious, but we forget doing that or even thinking about it because we're occupied by all these passages and musical ideas, and which is great. I'm not saying that they're not great, but the, the fundamental aspect mm -hmm. for me uh, is something that I see that is lacking with a lot of people, yet they want to work on substantial repertoire. And I think that what I love doing is I love getting to the bottom of how can I make someone feel free to tackle these problems without feeling like they're lacking the tools in order to tackle these problems. At the very beginning of your answer to this question, you talked about how you discovered that you didn't want to teach in the way that your teachers had taught and that you couldn't teach or yeah. like you cannot teach in that way. What did you mean by that? I think that when I worked with Professor Schwartz, for example, which is such a, when pedagogically such an important influence, first of all, he's an incredibly musical person, a knowledgeable person when it comes to music. And he has the incredible ability to make a student hear something, which is an incredible gift 
for uh, for a teacher. I just felt like if I would take his style of teaching and do that with my students, I'm not really doing anything to find my own voice in teaching. And I think you have to. And even if I try to do that at first, and I probably have in the beginning, I quickly realized that there are certain things that are coming out to me that I have to talk about and I cannot neglect them because I realized that this is a big problem. That's why now everybody's knocking on my door all the time and, and it's like, Boris, can you, can you help me with something? And then I say something, they're like, oh, I never thought about it. So it's not a really huge musical debate. Not that I don't think that there's not enough to talk about musically, but I think that you also have a talent when it comes to teaching and you have to first find out what is it that, that talent because people start teaching and uh, <laughs> I, I heard a great quote the other day and I think it was actually starker that you have people who found out how to fix certain problems and I might be paraphrasing a little bit, but they now teach people how to fix those problems, even though those people don't have those problems. Mm-hmm. So, so you know what I mean? Like, it, I think uh, one of the greatest things about Professor Schwartz is that if something was working very well, he wouldn't change it because he believed that it has to be different. He's so open-minded when it comes to that, that he's like, if it's not broken, don't, don't, don't fix it because it's already great. So for me, I, I realized that some people just have those gifts and I need to see where my gifts are. And I have to do my, my soul searching when it comes to how can I help a, a person that's coming to me. And I found out that a lot of the things that I'm doing when I'm actually getting to talk about music and talk about what we can do with the piece. And I, I want to prepare that person to actually understand what they're doing. And I don't think that a person is helping themselves if fundamentally they are not ready for that piece. And I don't know, with violin, in the violin world, you know, everybody wants to play Brahms Concerto and uh, Paganini Caprices, and it's all nice. But if we neglect the fundamentals, those things are really rough. And fundamentals is what's causing you to feel comfortable dealing with this thing. So I think for me, and I might be just going around the subject, but going back to the teaching idea, is that I felt that I'm most helpful with the way I think a lot of the times. I'm always looking for a solution of how this musically can work based on certain fundamentals. And music is based on fundamentals. So I guess that's kind of like why I meant by I, I cannot teach that way because I'm a different person. I'm a different musician. If I'll pretend, it will be noticed. What would you say is the balance between talent and work ethic when it comes to determining success in a student? When it comes to balance, I think, of course, there has to be a balance. A student has to be talented, obviously. But I think that work ethic plays a much more important role. Throughout my life, I I saw so many extremely talented uh, musicians who didn't quite found what it is that they're doing or how they could develop. Because a lot of the times, and you see it, people rely on on their talents. They, They feel very comfortable with their talent. I found that the musicians that I see that are excelling, not that they're not talented, they're very talented, but the work ethic plays a much, much bigger role in not only development, but also their goals. I think that a person who is very goal-oriented is most likely, most likely has better work ethic. And a lot of us, I think, <laughs> a lot of the students, especially, I remember talking to them, they, they, they will always say, I work very, very hard, but working hard is not necessarily the only 
answer to all of this. Working smart, it's an important one because I know students who practice six, seven, eight hours a day, but they can't really seem to show for it. And I'm always with the mindset that if you work, you have to be able to show for it almost the, the same day. You have to have a goal. So I think that the, that the people who put in the work, even if they don't feel like, I feel like I'm one of these people, by the way. I always felt very openly saying that I don't have that kind of talent that people, some people have where you can just pick things up. And for me, it was all, I had to figure it all out. But at the same time, it probably helped me become who I am today because of that. So talent is extremely important. But I believe that work ethic and work planning and how you work is probably the most important thing you can do, especially if you play an instrument. Mm. Yeah. What advice do you have for parents who have children taking lessons? How can they encourage and help them to succeed? What role do parents play in a child's musical development? It's a very interesting question. I think that for a very long time, I was under the influence that a parent needs to participate with their children's music lesson. And I still believe that to a certain extent, this is a good idea. Because when a child has a parent that is with them doing it, like for example, I'll never forget it. I have a friend who works in England now as a violinist. If I'm not mistaken, his mother came with him and started studying violin with him, which I thought was just an incredible, incredible thing to do. I just see too many parents who have their kids doing music and they come to the lesson, they go away and that's where that whole thing ends. And the problem with music is that music is not something you go for an hour once a week, which by the way, for a child, an hour a week, I strongly believe that it's way too little. So if that's already the case when it comes to lessons, there has to be some kind of attention to it at home. And, I, and very often the musicians I talk to that are really good at what they're doing, I always hear about that. Oh yeah, my father is a musician. Oh yeah, my mother is a musician. Or I was practicing at home with my grandmother, which is me, right? So uh, something like that, I always felt like it's a very, very important relationship, the parents in music. But at the same time, throughout my life, I found that they don't have to necessarily be there in that, in that regard. But I do feel like it doesn't even have to do with music, but more about child psychology. Because I feel like when a child notices, consciously or not, that somebody is interested in what they're doing, the child develops themselves an interest and a certain kind of affection towards that. If someone is good at a certain subject at school, they will probably like that subject, won't they? Because they're good at it. But if you're not so good at it, you'll probably not like that subject. But a lot of the time it's presented by, oh, I don't really like math or I don't really like science. Yeah, but if you would be very good at it, you wouldn't say that. So for a child, when a child senses that somebody's watching, somebody cares about what they're doing and encourages that, a child actually has a completely different attitude towards it. That, that, that does not mean that there wouldn't be someone who is just so fascinated by it and they will take it further on their own because there are cases like that too but still encouragement I feel like a lot of the time a lot of children just kind of I did that for a couple of years and then it could have been different it could have been different because of it was probably just another thing that a child was doing in their extracurricular activity 
And usually you can see the kids who do music as an extracurricular activity and kids who do music as this is my passion. So it's right in front of us. So I do feel like if there's any advice for a parent, and this is a general advice, be interested in what your kid is doing, even if it's not your interest per se, right? You might not necessarily, but I feel like it's an obligation as a parent. You have to know what is your child. What, tell me about it. What, 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 what do you like about this? Yeah, you want to play it for me? Suddenly there's a sense of, yeah, I want to spend time doing this more. How can you do this better? A lot of it, I think, plays an important role. Yeah, I like that framing because I think a lot of times when I talk to parents, it comes across as a duty, like a duty for them to force their kid to practice, a duty for the kid to practice. But this idea of just a parent taking interest really completely changes the dynamic and it, it might cause the parent to think, yeah, I am interested in what my kid is doing. And so all I have to do is just express that interest. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And you can see it with parents who usually sit in the lessons that are paying real attention. Like I could see, like I would work with a student and some parents are starting to do things with their hands because they really want to find out what is, what is happening. I do believe it plays an enormous role in how the child actually feels about what they're doing. And by the way, confidence is a big word. There's a sense of confidence and it's an important thing for a child. I feel confident because I know there's something behind me that supports me doing that. I think that's, that's wonderful. Do you have passions and hobbies outside of music and teaching? Absolutely. I love sports. Uh, I draw a lot of similarities, by the way, from sports. I love soccer. I love basketball. I kind of follow it too. And I'm always interested. Technology. I'm a big, I always follow what's happening and, I'm always interested to see how technology can benefit us or vice versa. Depends on how, how we look at it. I love animals. I always did since I was a child. People will always come in and like watch me watch like a, a documentary about a snow leopard. People will be like, what are you watching? I, 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 but I, I'm, I'm like that. If I get into something, I kind of disappear into my own cave and you can see me in a week and and now I'm going to start reciting it. I love music that is not classical music. Love uh, music of the 70s and 60s and jazz and progressive rock. I love that stuff. I find it fascinating of how people interpret music of a certain time. I teach music. I taught for at least for a while music appreciation. So I love history, love history and not just music history, just history as a whole. So yeah, many, many different things. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want music to be the only thing. I think that helps me, by the way, as a musician, honestly. I think that the fact that I draw so many different conclusions and have inspiration from so many different places only enriches the fact that I can come back to the same piece and never feel like I'm bored of it. Or if I have a certain problem I need to solve, I love solving problems. I think that's why the fundamentals aspect of it is so interesting to me. How to play this a certain way? How can I find a fingering that can work better for a student? based on their anatomy, based on how they play, based on their sound. So yeah, I always have something on my mind. I'm always kind of triggered, I guess. If you had a chance to redo your life and career choices, what would you change or not change about them? I tend not to. I, I do not like to think what if. I feel like my, my story, I, I'm so, I'm honestly blessed. I, 
I do pretty much everything I want. I look back and I couldn't have asked for a better story and could have been the, the most boring one. And I still would have picked that one because I, I had a chance to travel the world. I'm only 32 years old and I already had a chance to travel to so many different places, play in so many different places, meet incredible people, be in touch with incredible people. And uh, on top of it, rediscover myself on my own without having someone to kind of like, this is how it needs to be. And now I, I play as a soloist. I play as an orchestra player. I play as a chairman musician. I don't think I have the right to complain. So I, uh, and I teach, of course. I honestly, I wouldn't change anything. Uh, I think that I'm very, very happy with, uh, with my life. Well, with that in mind, we are approaching our very last question, which is, what advice would you give to young pre-collegiate musicians about a life with music? I think I, I, I'll repeat what I tell many people all the time. Never take anything for granted. As a human being, not just musician, there's so many things that are happening to us on a daily basis. We meet people, we talk to people, we play with people, we then go to class, we listen to recordings, we hear about you just never really know when something is going to affect you deeply. And it might not necessarily be the most obvious thing. This is what I remember. Because I, I, I drew inspiration from everything and anything that was around me. I remember when people were, when we were at school and we first got computers, and I discovered that you could get scores from the Library of Congress. I, I went a little nuts. I started looking for manuscripts that were already there. For a lot of people, it was like, why, why are you even, they're there when you, whenever you'll need them. And I, that's, for me, the difference. I don't wait to take an idea and push it further. So I truly recommend uh, musicians that practicing is very, very important, but it's also very important what are you practicing. For. And for pre-collegiate students, especially the ones that are embarking on this new chapter, it's a very exciting chapter because there's so much that is unknown yet. But I think that the most important thing is to use your time once you already go to college, to use the time in college, to not expect the college to kind of give you everything, but for you to use the resources and to expand, yeah, play with people, yeah, play contemporary music. Don't shy away from things that may seem a little bit far from what you usually do. I talk to my students about enjoying failure as awful as it may sound, you know, we always avoid it. We always avoid it. We always avoid it. But a school is the opportunity to actually go through experiences that later on you may say, oh, I'm really glad it happened then. And then it, and it didn't happen now. And I feel like music student in, in, part, in particular, they're bombarded with so many things. It's very, very important to clear our filter every once in a while and just be able to stop and always take a look back and realize, what are we dealing with? What are we doing? How are we working this out? I feel like that's very, very important. And, it, and that's my main advice, is to make sure that you're very open-minded, very open-minded, and uh, absorbing as much as possible. Boris, this has been a delightful conversation. Thank you for your passion. Thank you for your joy. And thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. I've enjoyed speaking with you, and I'm sure our listeners will enjoy listening to this episode. I wish you happy teaching and happy students.